Welcome to Stay Gold, an Outsiders podcast. I'm Sam Mulberry, joined as always by... Esme Mulberry. Esme, in this podcast we are working our way through the 2005 release of Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders, the complete novel, the director's cut of his 1983 film, but we're doing it five minutes at a time in five-minute segments. Um... We have made it to the 40-minute movie of the marks, uh, mark of the movie, so we're going to be um, looking at the 40-minute mark to the 45-minute mark. Um, but before we dive into the events of the movie, let's uh, remind ourselves of where we're at jumping in in a little segment we call Previously on Stay Gold. Okay, in the last five minutes, we learned that Johnny killed Bob the Sosha. And he and Ponyboy go to Buck Merrill's place to find Dally to try to come up with some, like, a plan, what they should do next. And they find Dally, and he gives them a gun, which is loaded, $50, and gives them a plan. They're supposed to get on a train, go to Windricksville, go to Jay Mountain, where there's an abandoned church, and then wait for about a week for him to come. Yeah. So what's interesting about this five minutes is that a big chunk of this is not in the 1983 cut of the film. So this is another point where there's a solid two and a half minutes added to the movie um, and in within this five minutes. So this is a, a much shorter segment of the 1983 film. Um, and we'll, we can maybe talk about uh, what's added by adding this. I think because... I think that's the thing we should be thinking about. This is not maybe the most exciting five minutes of the movie, but I think it's worth thinking about, you know, why did Coppola put this two and a half minutes back into the movie? Um, So we open this five minutes still in uh, the bedroom at at Buck Merrill's place. Dally is talking with Ponyboy and Johnny about the Windricksville plan. He tells them he'll meet them out there soon. He says, hey, relax. Uh, this this will work out, right? He's trying to convince them that things are going to be okay. And then he continues by musing, man, I thought New York was the only place I'd end up in a murder rap. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a book line? That is a book line. And there's a part in the book where Ponyboy says at the word, like, murder, Johnny kind of makes, like, a frightened noise. And if you listen hard to the movie, you can hear it. mm yeah, it's kind of quiet, but you can hear it if you listen for it. So then from there, we see them head down the stairs, uh, and Dally shows them uh, shows them out of Buck Merrill's as a woman at the bar kind of eyes Dally up. I don't know if that needs to be mentioned, but it definitely happens. Yeah, it definitely happens. And she's like, because you don't really follow them through the house. You stay on the same spot. So she's like in the center more of... The shot you get. Yeah, yeah. And they, they kind of walk out of frame mm-hmm. and it, stay, it stays And on I her. find myself watching her instead of them every time. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is probably, uh, I mean, she's definitely, there's definitely a direction given to her, right? That yeah. she's, she's supposed to be sizing up the uh, the shirtless Dally Winston as he's walking through. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the book in this scene, Dally takes them to the back door, which I kind of like more because it seems like a smarter thing to do. And then there's also, like, a moment where he says goodbye to, like, just Johnny, and it's this very nice moment. And that isn't in the movie as much. 
Yeah, although take the, the way that this house is set up, if you go down those stairs, either way you're walking yeah. through a group of people. Mm-hmm. So, so really, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know movie. that this building has a an easily accessible back door they can slip out of. Um, so from there, we cut to the three fifteen freight train to Windricksville. Um, uh, we see the train parked at clearly whatever the train depot is in the town. Um, so it's a pretty cool shot. It's a, it's, it's, you know, nighttime. So there's a lot of, everything is darkly lit with kind of the blue, uh, the blue moonlight. Um, and we hear Elvis's mystery train start playing in the background. So this is one of the additions, um, in the 1983 cut, there's no music to this part, right? Um, when they're first getting on the train, there's no music, but once they're like sitting on the train, there is. Yeah, yeah, but it, but the 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 scene of them yeah. sneaking on and jumping into the there's an open freight car they jump into, and there are two railway workers who are inspecting the cars, and their backs are kind of turned, and that's when mm-hmm. when um Pony and Johnny run and jump into the car, and then we see. Uh, the railway workers even come to inspect the car that they're in, but give they kind of hide in the in the corner by the door, and the people give it a real cursory glance with a flashlight. They're barely looking. Yeah, yeah. So these are people who are not uh, motivated personnel, let's say, of the of the railways. They're technically checking each car, but not really checking. Yeah. Um. Now I will say one of the things that we'll see in this, um five minutes is that the music cues are really on the nose yeah um so like they're on a train there's a song called mystery train playing mm-hmm. now it works it sounds good it's effective um but it is it there uh coppola does have some on the nose music cues here uh as the train moves down the tracks uh we see johnny sitting and holding the gun that dally gave him um and then we see a, a actually a really pretty shot of like the sun's starting to rise, so it's like you still have the kind of cool blue moonlit sky and the the like, but the breaking red of the sunlight. And across that, you see the silhouette of the train and the train whistle blowing. Um, I really like that they have the shot of like Johnny holding the gun because in the book, like when they sit down, he takes the gun out and, like, puts it next to him and he says, like, I don't know why he gave this to me. I could never shoot anyone. Mm. And it's, like, a really good line that I kind of get why they cut it, but I'm also kind of sad because it's, like, a really good line of just showing, like, he's actually a really good person and in his mind he could never kill anyone but then he also can. Yeah, I mean, he already has. Yeah. The thing. Yeah. yeah, you see him holding that gun is a little bit of, like, him kind of haunted by, like, it's a little bit of how did I end up here? How do I end up here with this? Yeah. Yeah, that this this is this is maybe not me. Mm-hmm. It's a really good shot, I think. The only problem is since it's, it's there's so much like darkness in it, it's kind of hard to like it took me not I got it on the second watch through, but it took me like a second to figure out what he was holding and then right. I got it. Right. Yeah, you can kind of see you can see the barrel of the gun and the end of the mm-hmm. gun and that's kind of how you make it out. It's a very it's a very dark shot. Um so this is the payoff to a lot of the train stuff that we've heard. I mean, a lot of the train whistle that yeah. we've heard throughout the movie. I mean, the train is the the way out of town. Um, and I think that's a, that's a common theme in kind of coming-of-age stories, especially small-towny coming-of-age stories, is wanting to escape where you grew up. 
um, escape the town you live in. So the train provides that opportunity. Um, so, so at this point, this is where we stop with what's in the 83 movie. Now this next chunk is stuff that's re-added for the, the, uh, 2005 cut. So, um, we see Johnny and Pony standing, their backs are to the camera and we now see the countryside, uh, out in front of them. So we're sort of scanning it along with them. Uh, and it's, a, it's kind of a great moment because it's like, these are characters you have seen in a specific setting mm-hmm. now in a new world. Um, yeah. you know, they, they have the country might as well be the land of Oz to them because like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think, I mean, I'm sure Johnny has never been out of the city. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that pony has either. Um, in the book, um, it talks about how pony boy, like with his parents used to come out in the country, like very rarely. So we also kind of learned from his dream sequence that this is a place he loves and doesn't get to go often. And then we also learned from Johnny that this is the first time he ever leaves their neighborhood. Okay. So this he is sort, sort of a Samwise Gamgee moment of like yeah. getting further from home than he's ever been. And if anybody really, I mean, in these for various reasons, these are characters who need to escape because of the, because of, of Bob's murder, but also like Johnny is, trapped you know in a yeah. bad family situation so this also provides this kind of opportunity for escape you hear the echoes of the, or you see the echoes of the um thing when he talks about you know there's got to be a place where there's just people and pony says well out in the country it's like that and yeah. now and now they're there um so you know from there we see them start to uh walk into this wide open country uh eventually we see them climbing up hills it's not exactly forest but it's like kind of like open farmland foothills of of mountains maybe um we see them walking through uh and then we reach a point where they see an old like pickup pickup truck pull up to an oil derrick so this is oklahoma this is oklahoma so texas oklahoma is also oil country so we see this this oil derrick out there um, and Johnny tells Ponyboy to go up and ask the, the guy working there where they are, which I think is helpful because there is this sense that, like, he, you know, Dally told them, hop on this freight train, get off here, find the top of this mountain, and there's a church. But it's like, they don't have, it's not like there's a road to this. They don't have a map or anything. They're just yeah. out there. Um, and uh, Pony asks why Johnny wasn't doesn't want to do it. And Johnny says, my ankles hurt. And I don't want to walk on him. Um, and what we realize as the scene progresses is that he's got like a limp and he's like walking with a walking stick. So it, mm-hmm. um, at some point, Johnny has turned his ankle, but that's not, we don't see that in the movie. Is that a re- book reference? So uh, in a way, what it is in the book is that when they're on the train, Ponyboy sleeps and like puts his head on Johnny's legs and then Johnny's legs fall asleep. So then when they get off the train, they Johnny actually stays like where they jump off and he tells Ponyboy go and find the first person and ask them. So oh, in the book okay. they're not even together. So I, they put this in the movie of like a um why it would just be Ponyboy who would go and ask them, but it's also I feel like it's a little dumb cuz he's like my ankles hurt and I don't want to walk on them, but then he also like kind of follows Ponyboy. He basically walks as far as he does. Yeah, yeah. so it's like I get what they were trying to do but it seemed kind of dumb. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, 
this is there's something a little awkward about this. Um, and so, I mean, I think this is one of the things where I think like I get why this scene was not in the '83 cut. If you're trying to make a two-hour movie down to 90 minutes, this is the kind of stuff that is not really fulfilling anything of yeah. of major of of major importance. Um, so Johnny just tells me, you know, go act like you're a, f- a farm boy taking a walk. Uh, he asks the guy where Jay Mountain is. Um, and, uh, the oil worker who's sitting on the derrick, he, there, there's actually two of them. They're, he's eating a sandwich and drinking, they're drinking Budweiser's very prominently. He points with, uh, with the Budweiser can, um, the points in the direction of Jay Mountain. And as Pony starts to walk away, the oil worker asks him, are you taking a walk? Mm-hmm. Um, and Pony improvs a little, uh, a little lie here. He says, uh, oh, we're all playing army. And he's supposed to report to headquarters, and the oil worker just kind of shakes his head as the as they walk away, saying, "Well, boys will be boys." Um, so I think, what do you think the purpose of this scene is to add this back in? Um, I it's I really don't know because it is a weird like. In the book, it felt a little weird, but necessary because again, it's like, why would they know? And in the movie, I don't, like, honestly, it is just kind of a, it makes the plot make more sense kind of thing. Yeah, and I will say, one of the things that, that really comes off differently between the movie and the uh, the 83 movie and the, and the uh, 2005 movie is that in the 83 movie, they're on the train, and then it's cut to they're at the church. Yeah. And this implies then that, like, well, actually, the train doesn't run right by the church. It's a hike. To where they're going, they mm-hmm. it's this thing they have to find. It also shows that they have been in they have been in contact with another person, but they were able to blend in basically. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that's a piece of this. But uh, again, I don't know that it's the most necessary part of mm-hmm. you know of, of the movie. There's also they do this a little bit in the um, movie, but they do a little bit more in the book in this, where like when Ponyboy is leaving to ask and. Johnny says, like, in the movie, he says, like, just pretend you're a farm boy. And he's like, do I look like a farm boy to you? And there's kind of a conversation of, like, you don't look like you belong here. You look out of place. Mm -hmm. And then there's a little bit of that of, like, kind of, it is kind of like the you don't belong here stuff. So that's another purpose it serves. But Yeah. Yep. Um, So... Then we cut to Johnny and Pony continuing their walk, and finally they see the church. And as they see the church, we hear Elvis's We're Gonna Move start playing. So a second Elvis song in this. Mm -hmm. Um, This next shot is really cool, and it actually syncs up with the music really well. This this is, again, not in the the 1983 cut of the film. It's a shot of the church from the inside, and we see all of the, like, like, gaps between the slats of wood in the church there's a lot of light coming in um we see that the church is full of cobwebs and dust but because of the all the gaps in the slats in the church we can see pony boy and johnny outside as they're trying to look into the church and the elvis song is all about how this uh the house that that we're living in has holes in the ceilings and broken window panes and all this stuff and we're going to move somewhere else and and as that's the song is saying that we're seeing that this church is run down with holes in the roof and broken windows and they're moving in 
Um, so it is, mm-hmm. it's, uh, again, it's one of those a little on the nose in terms of a song selection. I think it's pretty effective. Yeah. Um, and then this, this, uh, culminates in them finding a doorway into the church that's all boarded up and they start to pull the, pull, pull off the wood, um, into, uh, to get into the church. Yeah. I don't know why, but there's something really satisfying about them, like, pulling all the wood off of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's really nice to watch. It's like unwrapping a present or uncovering a treasure kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right because they're stepping into this place where clearly people haven't been for a while. Yeah. It also shows you how long it's been boarded up because the wood comes off real easy. Yep. 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 Uh, which, which also shows you that this wood is like, old and dry and um you could almost say this whole church is a tinderbox yeah uh foreshadowing <laughs> foreshadowing um so then we see them walk into the church walk through the church we see lots of dust and dirt and cobwebs and broken furniture we also see that there are rabbits living in the church mm-hmm. um we we see an owl that screeches and flies off that startles johnny and then we see johnny and pony First sit down on the floor at the front of the church, and then they lie down on the on the, the church floor. And you realize, like, other than when they fell asleep in the lot, which was not that long of a time that they, they were sleeping there, they have not slept for a long time. Yeah. So this is this gives you this sense of like how exhausting would it feel? But they finally made it to the place where they're going to be for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it has that feeling of like when you've been on a long, when you've been traveling and you finally get to your hotel room, you know, and it's like, I can finally really rest and really sleep. So, um, so that's where this five minutes ends. So in some ways, it's not a terribly eventful five minutes. We've come off of the plot really accelerating and a lot happening. And this is definitely a part where the movie slows down. And I think that's intentional to think about, like, like life in the country is maybe slower than life in the city. But there's definitely, like, like this is definitely a slower chunk. Um, and it's interesting to think about, you know, again, why – it makes sense why this would be cut out if you're just trying to make the movie more economical. Do you think anything is really added – by adding, we talked about the first chunk that was added back in when they talked mm-hmm. to the guy at the oil derrick. Do you think there's any value in adding this other than like it's a pretty shot? Um, adding the kind of panning shot of the the broken down church from the inside. Um, I think really the only kind of stuff that's added is that it shows you kind of the setting, like what the building's like, what state it's in. And then again, like, it's an oddly satisfying shot of them taking the boards off the window. So, like, it's a weird thing if you kind of enjoy watching it, but really the only purpose it serves is really giving you a look of, like, what this building is. Yeah, a little lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it. Uh, yeah. I, again, I think it slows things down, not necessarily in a bad way. I, yeah. also, I also honestly think part of this is um, to drop another Elvis song in. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much is like, oh, we've got a great song we can play alongside this, and it works really well there. Like, I, yeah. I, I, I kind of wonder. It's also, like, I notice this a lot in this five minutes and the next five minutes of, like, since it's not a lot of, like, talking happening and these songs are playing, like, 
you kind of just listen to the songs a lot. Mm-hmm. And like we watched through these five minutes multiple times. Like I kind of got into the music that was playing. Like mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also think what's interesting about this part of the movie is it looks different. I mean, like, like, like this gives you more time to get that feel of like, oh, the like dry country going for a long walk in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. feels so different than everything you've seen in town, in the city. Yeah. You know, so, so like it helps you feel that contrast a little bit more adding, adding that, that walk in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we've talked a little bit about the book. Anything else in terms of um, h- how much of this lines up with the book? Are there major changes from the book? Well, the big major change is that, like, the Johnny stays behind and just Pony Boy goes sees, um, asks a person with for directions. And in the book, he asks a farmer. Um, but it's also interesting because, like, even this, the conversation he has with the oil worker is the exact same conversation as with the farmer. Like, even the directions he gives him, like, word for word, it is the same conversation. So, in, like dialogue that happens it's very similar in setting it's very similar it's just like the little change of kind of like what johnny's doing but it also is kind of a big change because it's just the five minutes and it's kind of a big part of the five minutes Mm -hmm. it seems like it's changed a lot but plot wise like it doesn't yeah it serves the same purpose nothing yeah nothing uh fundamentally changes because of that so if you were to score this on a scale of zero to ten in terms of fidelity to the book what would you say honestly like it would probably be like a seven because it is they do a lot of the same stuff the lines that are said are pretty much word for word even though it's they don't really talk that much i think the description of the church like and then what the church actually looks like are very similar um but it's just like the one thing that they change and it's kind of turned into a big thing because it's yeah a lot of that five minutes right right no absolutely absolutely uh should we do a deep dive yeah all right so this is this is episode nine and we're finally doing a deep dive on i guess the person who's the star of the movie in terms of um the centerpiece narrator entry point character person who's in almost every frame of the movie and that is c thomas howell um, and I think he's interesting because in a movie full of young actors who are on the verge of exploding into the American box office, um, Howell is one of those people who's definitely part of that group of young actors, but doesn't make the same big splash. I mean, in some ways, there's kind of two major movies Howell is remembered for, and The Outsiders is one of them. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a big problem. Um, so, so yeah, he has a, a complex career. Uh, so Howell is born December 7th, 1966 in Van Nuys, Los Angeles, California. So again, continuing this trend of people either from LA or New York, uh, in, in this movie, um, his father was a stunt coordinator and a rodeo performer. So you're finally getting a little bit of your rodeo in here. And in fact, Howell grew up. Um, wanting to follow in his father's footsteps, wanting to do stunts. And he did do rodeo as a young man. So, like, um, so we do have a little bit of rodeo DNA uh, in C. Thomas Howell. How that, do you feel about that? That actually makes me really happy. Um, so in 1982, 
Uh, Howell landed, uh, so this would be at the age of um, like 15, probably 15 or 16. He lands a part in Steven Spielberg's E.T., the extraterrestrial. Um, so he plays uh, not one of the main kids, but he plays one of the kids in the movie. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go. It's been a while since I've seen E.T. I kind of want to go back and figure out which kid is C. Thomas Howell. Yeah. I don't know if he's one of the kids that like chases the chases Elliot and E.T. or I, I, I'm not sure or if he's like one of the older brother's friends. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, E.T. at the time was the highest grossing film of all time bringing in $619 million worldwide. So um, Howell comes into The Outsiders coming off of one of the biggest movies ever made. Um, uh, In 1983, he's cast to play the lead role of Ponyboy in The Outsiders. Um, For this performance, he wins a Young Artist Award for performance uh, in a a film drama. So um, so successful, you know, in terms of that. Um, In 1984... He stars with Patrick Swayze, so his uh, his movie older brother, in two films, Granville, USA, and Red Dawn. Um, so, you know, f- kind of stays connected to the Outsiders cast. Um, his career takes a really interesting, there's a really interesting moment in 1985. I don't know if you were aware of this fact, but Hal was one of two finalists to play the role of Marty McFly in Back to the Future. So it came down to C. Thomas mm-hmm. Howell. And Eric Stoltz. And Hal was the favorite to win the role. But one of the producers really wanted Eric Stoltz. So they ended up going with Stoltz. And then Stoltz is later famously replaced by Michael J. Fox. Um, This is such an interesting sliding doors moment for him. Because Back to the Future becomes like just a mega hit. It becomes the number one box office earner of 1985. Bringing in $388 million dollars. You know, continuing to launch the career of Michael J. Fox. It's interesting to think if you put C. Thomas Howell in that role, even if it's not as big as the Michael J. Fox version, even if this makes $200 million instead of three, makes half the money it makes, it's still a huge success and potentially launches Howell in a different way. Yeah, wow. Isn't that fascinating? That's crazy to think about. So, So his career trajectory was... On this big upswing, he doesn't get that role. Um, and then uh, in 1986, Howell stars in one of the most problematic movies of the 1980s. Now, I assume this is a movie you've never heard of. Yeah. Um, this is a movie I have seen. Uh, the movie is called Soul Man. Uh, so financially, it's a moderate success. I mean, it makes... It, I think it like triples its budget. It was like a $10 million movie and made 35 or something like that. Um, but this movie is condemned by the NAACP, by African-American advocacy groups, um, because do you know what the plot of Soul Man is? Nope. Okay, I'm going to tell this to you. And, of course, you weren't alive in 1986. I want you to view – and this would have been – this should have been more abhorrent than it was in 1986 – but in, in 2022 eyes, I think you're going to not believe that this movie was made um, just 20 years before you were born. Okay. So, C. Thomas Howell plays a college student who's pre-law. Mm-hmm. And he wants to go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can't afford it. He can't afford to go to Harvard Law School. Okay. So, and now this is from memory, so I'm not, I think this is what happens. So, he takes... 
basically an overdose of like tanning pills what? to darken his skin so he can win a scholarship to Harvard Law for an African American. No. Yeah. So it is. It is a blackface movie. Ooh. Um. And 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 it is, it is deeply, deeply, just a deeply problematic movie in lots and lots of ways. Yikes. So so what's what's interesting for me is that when I think of C. Thomas Howell, I think of Soul Man. Oh no. And it's like, and and it's it it is as abhorrent as it sounds, right? And so I mean, when we're so we're not talking about something from like the nineteen teens or even the nineteen. 40s or 50s. This is 1986. Um, and and uh, so this is what I think of when I think of C. Thomas Howell. So it's really interesting to watch The Outsiders and be like, oh, here's this young actor. Um, and to think about the Marty McFly thing, right? It's like his career could have gone in a very different, uh, a very different trajectory. So yeah. there's a degree to which Soul Man kind of shapes... I think the way a lot of people think about C. Thomas Howell, at least for me, that becomes the defining role. Um, he continues to have uh, an acting career, works up through the present, um, playing roles in like 128 films I think I saw listed, as well as many TV appearances. Now, if we think about that, 128, that's more than anybody else we've looked at, right? Yeah. So what does that tell you? They're not big roles. Exactly, right? So other people we've looked at who've gone on to have big movie star success, we'll see like, oh, they're in 32 movies or 48 movies or even 60 or 70 movies, right? But if you're in twice that, it means you're in lots of small roles. So Howell does not, he continues to be a working actor, but does not become a real big movie star. So of the young cast of this film he is definitely the person for whom the outsiders is a pinnacle moment not a launching moment uh in in the same kind of way i mean in some ways the outsiders is other than soul man the most uh, probably iconic role that c thomas howell plays so it's, it's interesting to think like of all of these careers that gets launched he's the one that's his is the one that maybe sputters out the most mm. um, but definitely had momentum in the 1980s so on that note, uh, as we think about wrapping up the show, we should talk about who won the five. Um, there's really not a lot of people we can put in here. There's really only a few actors of note who show up here. We have we have Ralph Macchio as Johnny Cade. We have C. Thomas Howell as Ponyboy Curtis. We have a little bit of Matt Dillon as Dally Winston at the beginning. Um, I mean, other than that, we could talk about the the, the girl who's eyeing up Dally Winston <laughs> or the oil worker. Neither of them are major performances. Um, I think the other option is this this five minutes, which gets added back in, as we said, features two Elvis Presley songs. Elvis has won the five before. Um, there's a possibility you could you could give this to Elvis as well if you don't feel like either of the two of the two main acting performances jump out at you. What's your thoughts here? Oh, it's like, I kind of want to give it to Elvis again. Cause like I got kind of into the music. Like I really enjoyed it. But then I also feel bad that even when it's basically just Ralph Macchio and C. Thomas Howell, they still can't win. Well, as we said, we're about to enter a chunk of the movie where it's a lot of the two of them for the yeah. next couple episodes. And, 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 you know, I think, to be honest, I think Macchio has already won a five. And again, yeah. we don't need to look at it this way. But I think he is 
a performance that stands out as a, a really positive, a really like good performance. I don't think Howell is great in a lot of this movie. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, I also think in this part of the movie, they don't have a lot to do. They're mostly walking. <laughs> there's yeah. not even a lot of talking. Yeah, there's not. Yeah, it's like I feel weird if I said either of them had like good acting performances because it is just like shots of them walking through fields is most of and it. And like looking at the church and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and so. Taking down some boards on a window in a real satisfying way. Yeah, so I think maybe Elvis is the winner yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I especially like the second song. I think yes. that works That works so well with what, with what Coppola adds back in, so. Uh, I think Elvis wins his second five here. I didn't know. I didn't know Elvis was going to take two of these home, but I really do think when you look at just this five minutes, that is the star of this is the Elvis music, and especially I think the the second Elvis song we're yeah. going to move. Well, uh, that was a, a surprising turn here, uh, maybe. Um, hopefully, you enjoy what you're listening to. If you agree with us that uh, that this that that Elvis won the five. Uh, or if you think that uh, this two and a half minutes that Coppola adds back in shouldn't have been added back in, let us know. Email us channel3900 at gmail.com. Um, email us if you think Machio or Howell should have won the five. If you think the woman in the bar or the oil worker should have won the five or the Budweiser can should have won the five <laughs> because that is some early product placement you know, in this movie. Now it's a kid's movie and it's a Budweiser, so I don't know that that's great product placement, but it's definitely there. Um, email us, channel3900 at gmail.com. That is all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about minute 45 to minute 50. Until then, stay gold. Stay gold.